Hi, I'm George Bailey. My wife Christina and I have four children. We started this podcast, Choose the Nickel, in an effort to learn how to raise our children to be financially and professionally successful adults. We seek out fascinating people and ask them about their own childhood so that we can learn from them. Our next guest is Lee Cockerell, the former executive vice president of operations for the Walt Disney Resort. Lee has written books about career development, customer service, and more. He currently offers courses in planning and time management, and you can hear him on his podcast, Creating Disney Magic. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Lee Cockerell, welcome to Choose the Nickel. How are you? Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm doing great. Life is good. I have to ask, you've had a lot of really wonderful business successes. I'd like to ask which of those successes do you believe most defines your professional legacy? You know, I went through a tough time early in my career because I was young, uh, a lack of self-confidence. I didn't graduate from college. So I was kind of uh, hard on people in the beginning and just kind of used my uh, my position inappropriately to kind of intimidate people. And I would say I went through a time at Marriott when I a guy told me he was totally intimidated by me and had to be transported to the hospital for they wanted to look him over because he was feeling faint and all kinds of things. And it was because I was coming. <laughs> and that really struck me. He and I had dinner together later that night and talked about it. And uh, that's the day I really started rethinking why was I so hard on people and why didn't I trust people and I needed to work on that. And so I started going to seminars on leadership and reading more and thinking more. And as as I got more successful, I uh, didn't have to do that anymore. I started trusting people more slowly but surely. And uh, it took me a while to get out of that because the lack of self-confidence really hinders your progress sometimes. And sometimes you don't make the right decisions and you're defensive and pushback and all that. So I think going through that was probably defining my career because nobody likes to work with defensive people and nobody no. li- likes to work with people that's never their fault. <laughs> so that was a good one. And that really uh, probably helped me get where I did eventually, having the ability to work with people and have the right relationships and frankly, have them to trust me. That's the one I worry about the most is always make sure people trust you. That's wonderful advice. And I appreciate your sharing that story. I think that sometimes we look back on the things that we've achieved and some of the things that maybe we did wrong. And we want to shield ourselves from those things that, (laughs) you know, maybe were mistakes and whatnot. But I like that you embrace that and that you kind of think of it as part of your legacy. But you've had this very positive legacy in terms of what you did for Disney World. What would you say was the biggest accomplishment there? I think the focus I had on the culture of trying to make sure that we were creating a culture where everybody mattered and they knew they mattered. And I wanted all the 7,000 managers at Disney to start to respect and appreciate everyone, no matter what job they were in, and to treat people respectfully. And that's what I drove home hardest during the 10 years I was running operations over there. And I had to set the right example. When I did that, was clear with my team, they did it. When they were clear with their teams, we we worked it all the way down the line. And uh, because at the end of the day, I want everybody to wake up in the morning and excited to come to work, not dreading it because they got some boss that treats them like the bottom of their shoes. (laughs) So I would say that's the one. If you get the culture right, everything else works out pretty easily. Well, it has to have been fun to have been part of that Disney family. Well, it was. I had three jobs in my life, one with Hilton, with Marriott, and with Disney. And the pride factor of people that work for Disney is 
extremely high. Of course, 99.9% of our guests love us, <laughs> so that makes it easier. <laughs> but I know, like I'm sure you were thinking business. about that. Yeah, I'm sure you're thinking quite a bit about that other, uh, that point one. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, it's like, you know, we had it easy. A lot of companies out there in the oil business or cigarette business or alcohol business, so. Uh, most of our guests are happy when they get oh, there. Yeah. So we have a lot of responsibility to take care of them. But at the same time, uh, when people love you, it's easier to make them happy. So I have to tell you that my oldest son has autism and for, and he just loves Disney. And we have oh, yeah. an allowance for him and he's constantly saving for the next Disney movie, whatever it is he can get. I think the last one that he just bought was a, a DuckTales adventure movie from the late eighties, early nineties or something like that. And it has this very powerful effect on children. And I've actually heard that autistic children seem to really pick up on it. And I, I'm not sure if I've oh, ever. Oh yeah, yeah, tell me about do. that. I've, Have you ever I've seen- talked to many guests over the years about that. Actually, there was a family that moved from New York to Orlando because every time they brought their son to Disney, he got better and got more <sighs> engaging and communicated more. I think the music, the sounds, who knows what triggers it. We've heard that many, many times about the impact that a visit to Disney parks has on children with autism. That is really cool. Yeah. Well, I've yet to take him there, but that's something I would love to do in the near future just because I know, I know that he would just go haywire with it and love that. So yeah, he will. Now, yeah. as a child, did you ever watch any of the Disney movies then? And, and what would you have been watching? What was kind of your experience with Disney back then? For a while, it was just kind of little golden books or something because we didn't get a television until I was in the fifth grade. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's when Disney started, I think, having those Sunday night World of Disney, and uh, we watched those. But we didn't have any money, and so TV came out, I don't know what year. We got it one in 1954. We knew about Disney, and we knew about Mickey Mouse from really comic books and the Golden Books. But we had never seen any movies. Or you'd go to the theater, and you'd see a cartoon or a movie. That was pretty much the way we got it. Not like kids do today. They get it any way they want it. It was always exciting, and we always loved it. I think back about how strong comic books were back in the 50s compared to today and those kind of books because we didn't have anything else to look at to get that kind of excitement. So, yeah, it was always there. Somebody asked me once, said, Lee, can you imagine the world without Disney? I guess told me that. (laughs) I I guess not because it's all over the world. Oh, it really is. That's really funny. So in terms of comic books, though, who were your favorite comic book characters? When you first start out, Mickey Mouse was right there in your face all the time. I mean, he was the main guy. It's hard to say. Read those books and Donald Duck would be in there and Huey, Dewey and Louie and (laughs) Daisy. So, I mean, they were all uh, pretty magical for a young kid to think about uh, getting away from the daily lives uh, getting involved in a book like that or a magazine or a comic book. So uh, we liked them all. Now, that was yeah. pretty important for you. When one of your recent interviews, you said that your mom had married five times while you were growing up. What <laughs> yeah, was, she was busy. Oh, yeah. What was the impact for you? How did you interpret that and how did you overcome that and make that a positive part of your life? I don't really know how I was impacted. I ended up with some anxiety and depression a few years ago when my wife was sick and almost died and I had to take care of her for two years. 
I went to the psychiatrist. He said, tell me about your life. <laughs> and I told him, yeah. my mother was married five times. We were poor. I've been adopted twice. I got my name Cockrell when I was six, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he said, okay, now I'm going to tell you what's the problem. <laughs> and, and it's true. I mean, oh, probably yeah. I, that insecurity I had was realized. I mean, I there was no violence in our house, and we got fed every night. But uh, as I tell you, we didn't have an indoor john. We had to go out to the outhouse, and we got my mother literally heated water and bathed my brother and I in a one of those tubs and but we thought it was normal we, we didn't know that wasn't the way everybody did it oh yeah and so my brother and i look back we had a pretty happy you know we played and we're on a farm and running around doing whatever we wanted to do and my mother didn't even know where we were half the time out running in the woods and so i don't know i think deep down some of that stuff that's in your brain you don't realize it went there probably when my parents were arguing or having a hard times or those little things that creep in probably affect you and i'm sure they did because i'm really aware of that so much now to be careful what i say and do around people especially around children and around gas and not to say something that's going to go up in their head and come out 20 years later oh yeah and so it's like bullying little kids get bullied and they don't realize it but later on it affects who they are when they're 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road I tell everybody half the stuff in your brain's not true and half of it you don't even know is up there. So <laughs> it's gonna come back it's gonna come out later. And it comes out in your marriage, it comes out in your emotions, all kinds of ways. Traffic, you know, yeah. who knows what triggers people to be not behave properly. So I, I'm very aware of that today and I pay a lot of attention to that and I think the thing I would say to people, don't underestimate the influence you have on other people. So be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. Be careful how you make people feel, especially children. Wow. And uh, they're very fragile. You can really screw I said every baby's born perfect until we screw them up. So, yeah, so <laughs> that's what I think about all the time. Oh, I don't my gosh. That is so true. For screwing somebody up. Yeah. They all come out just fine. There's no bigotry and no racism in any newborn baby. So that's what I don't want to contribute to that. What's so powerful to me about what you're saying is that, you know, there is a certain sensitivity that we cultivate as children through the experiences that we have, whether or not we're aware of that, and that we bring that stuff into the professional world. You know, we bring it with us. It, It follows us no matter what. What's remarkable is that you were able to pinpoint, at least at some point, that that was happening. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Took a while, but especially when you leave a little farm, get out of Oklahoma, and you go. I went to New York and to Washington D.C., and that's even more intimidating. Yeah, you know, all of a sudden I'm in these fancy places, and everybody's dressed properly, and it was—it's quite intimidating. It, it doesn't affect you so much if you stay in your own little environment where everybody's like you and they all know you. I mean, it's—it's it's added pressure and. But on the other hand, people need to get out of their village. They need to get more exposure, more experience, and more education. Somebody said that I saw a quote the other day. Said, "You can't go back because back there you were a different person." And oh it's yeah, true. I'm a different person than I was when I left Oklahoma. I'm not the same person, and that's why it's hard. As I always say, hard to go home. <laughs> you know, after you've been out in the world, back to your little village and uh, where everybody's pretty much. Not very much exposure in their life. Yeah, it's boring. 
I look at some of the experiences you had in your childhood, and I know other people who've had similarly very hard backgrounds. My dad, his mom married seven times, and you know I've heard him talk about what that was like and whatnot. And I had my own difficulties in childhood that I've mentioned from one time to the other on the show. But with all of that hardship, what do you think were the factors in your childhood that prevented it from being worse? Probably my grandmother. You know, you talk about the people who propped you up. And I lived with my grandmother the first three years I was born. My mother, she was young. She was 19 when she had me. Her mother was 17 when she had her. And uh, she grew up in a dysfunctional home. And uh, my grandmother was an incredible lady, the nicest person I've ever met. And, man, she told me every day how great I was and I could do anything. And uh, she was always available when I was not happy with my mother, which was most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, So that kind of person. And I think you'll find today a lot of grandparents are raising grandkids because the kids or the parents are on drugs or divorced or alcohol or something happens or unemployed. And that person who uh, loves you no matter what, and that was my grandmother. I think that was probably gave me that. Uh, empathy. I think I have two things. I have a lot of discipline. I'm very organized. I get it done. And I have empathy. She taught me that empathy to take care of everybody and to respect everyone. And so I, that's what I try to do. And I think it's just in my brain now. And I'm, I think she put it there. Hmm. Yeah. Very nice. What is the most positive experience you remember having with your grandmother? The one I think about, she didn't have much money either. She worked for Phyllis Petroleum as a little clerk and I think her pension was $100 a month when she retired after 25 years. She had a little job. The only reason she had the job is because during World War II, she was an elevator operator at Penny's when you had people who operated the elevators. And then she got a job because everybody went off to war. One thing I remember, I loved those dried apricots, and they were expensive. And I told her how much I liked them. And she bought those for me, and I know she couldn't afford them. And another night, I wanted a hamburger. And we had one of those banks that we, she and I worked on it until we could shake out a dollar oh, yeah. out of the bank. It's one of those with a little trap door on it, so it's hard to get money out. you got to hold it up and shake it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and once when I got a uh, my birthday present, I started to open it. And I saw this watch band, and I thought it was a watch. And I said, oh, good, a watch. I was like five or six years old. And it wasn't. It was an identification bracelet with a band on it and I um, and she went down and bought me a watch nice <laughs> well, she always wanted me to have whatever she was incredible lady. She, I don't think there's a person in the world didn't like her and heard about her so yeah. now that you are I should say and this sounds silly you know all grown up I think of the way that you have raised your own family. And you talked a little bit about this a few months ago. It was an October episode that I really enjoyed. Actually, I'm going to share it in the show notes because I think that people need to just go listen to this interview where you talked about how you learned to spend time with your family because you were busy. You had a very busy job. You're working for Marriott Hilton, Disney. I want to go into a little bit more detail about the conversations you were having with your children individually. You mentioned that you would actually get them each alone. Rather than just taking all the kids out, you would make sure that you spent time with them individually. What was that like? Yeah, well, I have one son and three grandkids, and that's how that went down. I First of all, I worked all the time. I worked six days a week for Hilton, and I never was home until late at night. And I was in the food business, and it was tough. 
I was never home on Christmas Day, New Year's, all those. I had to work. And that was a time I made sure that as my son got older, I spent time with him individually because he was with his mother all day long, of course. Okay. And so we joined Indian guides and he and I went camping together, just him and I. I took him for two or three days to the beach every summer just for him and I to talk about life and about the facts of life and how girls get pregnant and <laughs> all that stuff over and over and over and over again and had very candid conversations with him. And then we took him everywhere we went when he was after he was born. If we went out to dinner, he went when he was six months old or any time. He always went with us. First, we couldn't afford a babysitter. So oh, yeah. we just took him along and... He grew up to be very well behaved because he was in restaurants, nice ones from the time he was just a little thing. So he was always with us and we always went on vacation together. And we all, I mean, we went to relatives' houses and where he was adored, of course, grandparents. And I was at every one of his football games in high school. I flew back from Japan to make sure I was at the game. Oh, wow. And uh, I cooked the steaks every week for the football team. I told my boss I needed to leave early on Fridays because I had to cook the meat and steak. And so I, I just had all clarity with my bosses over the years of here's things I got to be available to do. And I, if my son has something on Wednesday when he's in third grade at two o'clock, I'm going to go to that, by the way, just so you know. And don't be telling me I need to work. So I always made it a priority. Maybe I did it harder even because of my own situation that I wanted to make sure. And he grew up very confident and done well. And I didn't get a college degree, but he did from Boston University. And then he got an MBA and he was at Disney for 27 years. He was vice president of three of the parks. And he's now got his own business and he's got three kids that are doing great. In fact, wow. they, I tell everybody they like me better than they like him. So, because uh, <laughs> I, I buy them iPhones and computers and stuff. So we have a really strong family, and uh, they love to come home. One's in, working in Boston now, one's in college in Colorado, and one's on the way to college. They wouldn't miss an evening with the family. It's uh, pretty special, Great. especially the way I grew up to see it now for them. They are just as happy as they can be. Yeah. And I think it's that safety and security and feeling loved and cared about. We're available for them, and notice. All those little things we all want is to feel secure, safe, and, you know, I tell every parent wants their kids to have education and safety. Oh, yeah. Make them safe and make them educated. You've done most of your job. Teach them the right things with integrity and honesty, and we talk about those things a lot. And I've had very kind of, I took my grandkids each year. I take them on a business trip with me. I took my grandson when I spoke to the Navy SEALs out in Coronado, California. He went. He was about oh, seven or cool. eight. He let, they let him go through the course on the beach and the obstacle course. And we had a great time for three days. I took my other grandson. I was doing work for SeaWorld, and he came with me. And I took Margo. We went to visit the troops out in the desert in California where they train all the troops. And she came with me, and they liked her better than me. I mean, <laughs> officers brought their daughters their daughters to meet her and so those trips were they never forget that and then we took them to south africa and let them see Soweto or five million blacks live and how they were treated and learned those lessons but uh, i got grandkids and a son that doesn't have a discriminatory bone in their bodies and uh we've given them exposure and experience and they know we treat everybody right and uh so that's nice to see. They, you know, they always say what you teach your children, they teach their children, and it's true. 
And you got to be careful in business too. What you teach your people who work for you, that's what they, how they treat their people. And, well, it's, so it's a wonderful a blessing between families. Yeah. yeah. It's a wonderful blessing to have that time. And I know that the time that I was able to spend with my grandmother when I was young was very meaningful. You know, I love just having time to chat with my mom. But what I think about in terms of those conversations, I think that, uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk about the birds and the bees. Somebody's got to do that. But, <laughs> but did you ever take time to talk with your son about money and business? And what was that like? Yeah, well, you know, when I grew up, you worked. I mean, when you're on a farm, everybody has a job. So, I mean, yeah. even in third grade, I had to milk a cow every morning. I sold the milk to my neighbors across the road, the Thompson family. And uh, we had electric milkers, but my parents had me do it individually by hand. Uh, probably part of my development program. But then we always had jobs. In the summer, we worked on our grandfather's farm, uh, doing whatever he needed to have done, riding on the back of the tractor to make sure the hay bales tied properly. When I was in high school, I had a job in a lumber yard, unloading concrete and cement bags out of boxcars and delivering sheetrock and lumber. I worked at a drugstore delivering pharmacy to customers in the region. And I had a job in college uh, working in the kitchen. We always worked and we made sure our son did the same. We sent him to Oklahoma every summer. He didn't have to work. We were in good shape, but he worked on a cattle ranch. He worked in a bookstore. He always had a job. And so did our grandkids, and they really didn't have to work, but they all worked in horticulture, pulling weeds and every summer, and they worked in one as a waiter in a restaurant, another one in fast food, and my granddaughter, I talked to her today, and she's all, she's got two jobs while she goes full-time to college, and she said, I'm going to look for a third one. I said, what are you going to do? She said, I think I'm going to deliver Uber Eats. <laughs> said, okay, whatever. Said, but she's, she's wired that way. She likes organization. She was growing up. She wanted no boys coming in her room. She said they messed things up. She likes everything organized. So they're great fun. She called me today to see if I would uh, help her buy a new computer, and she'd pay me back on the 14th of each month, $100, till it's paid for. I said, I'll buy it for you. She said, no, no, I want to pay for it. I said, all right. They're good kids, and they, they're very responsible. My son really he understood money. We didn't have a lot when we were young when I was in my career. We never went to Disney. Uh, yeah. Daniel had never been to Disney until he uh, joined Disney. Oh, wow. <laughs> he had never been to really? Disney World. And I'd never been to Disney World until I joined him when I was 46 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, we went to Disneyland once way back in the 70s, but we really didn't have money. It was expensive. We couldn't afford it until my career finally started taking off. And, uh, those early days were tough. And uh, we were very careful about money, and they're all in good shape. They they all work and they all take care of things. And it's hard to give them money. They don't actually want, they really reject it almost. I think, I don't know whether it's this kind of pride thing or what it is, but I sent my grandson $50 the other day in Venmo, the wire transfer. Oh, yeah. I said, hey, have a good dinner tonight in Chicago. And he sent it back to Pappy. No, don't send me money. I don't need my money. <laughs> Well, he just got a great job. He's in biomedical engineering. He started in Boston two days ago in his new position, and he, oh, he's got a great deal, great salary. And, uh, but they don't want me sending the money. So I said, all right, you can wait till I'm dead, then you can do it. And, <laughs> and then they get really you're mad. You're going to get into like one way or the other, right? <laughs> yeah, they said, don't talk about that death. I said, all right. Uh, 
By the uh, way, I, I love your discussion about the box that you have. You have this plan and everything is in the box that needs to be there so that, you know, when you die, that uh, people will know what to do. I think that that's a great idea. Part of what the message that we're trying to get across to people on Choose the Nickel is you need to be very aware of the legacy that you're leaving behind with your kids. And I think that part of that legacy is the practical aspect, not just the emotional memories, which I think are the most important part, but the practical aspect of making sure that, hey, you're prepared, you've got life insurance, you've got a will, a trust, or whatever you need to be able to pass that on. Now, absolutely. just to give listeners a little bit of context, your show, Creating Disney Magic, is basically a conversation between you and your friend, Jody Mayberry. Tell me a little bit about how that friendship started, because he's such a wonderful guy. He is, and I can tell you, it's one of my theories is you should meet anybody and talk to anybody who wants to talk to you. I meet people every morning, and Jody called me about four years ago, and he said, hey, I'm Jody Mayberry. I'm an ex-park ranger in Seattle State Park System, and I have a podcast called Parks and Recreation. And he said, I'd like to interview you for my show. I said, okay, fine. He called. We did the interview. That was it. About three or four months later, he called me back and said, this is Jody again. I said, yeah. He said, have you ever thought about having your own podcast? I said, Jody, I didn't even know what a podcast was till you called me. <laughs> he said, well, I said, I'm happy to do it as long as you do all the work. I don't work. I'm the <laughs> I talk. That's all I do is talk. And I don't do any follow-up. I don't do any yet, nothing. He said, okay. And so we started, and now we're at 215 or 20 uh, shows so far. Wow. And uh, it's go- going well. We've got some sponsors, and it helps my business dramatically. I get speaking engagements out of it. I get to meet people from all over the world. Uh, you know, when it's on the Internet, as you know, I hear from Russians. I can tell Jody posted on Tuesday morning from Seattle. <laughs> and, of course, the people in Asia get it first. And so I'll get little emails from them early, and then later in the day it'll be coming in through the S and into Europe, and you can tell almost uh, what, what order you get responses from, from because it's people in different parts of the world have listened to it at different times in the 24-hour cycle. So that's been exciting to me and fun, and and I meet a lot of people that when I'm in that country I meet up with them, and it's great. And my books are in like first ones in 18 languages now, so wherever I go, most people know about it, and. Uh, uh, it's in Russian and Chinese and Portuguese and Spanish and all over the place, Japanese. Yeah, so it's fun. Well, it was it was funny lately that he asked a question and then he inserted his own comment and said something about how, well, you know, normally I just want to let you do the speaking and whatnot. And I just please encourage him, say, you know what? I talked to one of our listeners and he said – that he actually really loves what you have to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's great. We try to keep it fun. Oh, you guys are great. Dry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I appreciate the entertainment that you guys are providing as well as the terrific business advice. So I've got one more question and then I'll let you go. And that is, right. what is your very favorite charitable cause seeing as how you've now been very blessed and you have some really wonderful things what's the thing that you just love being able to give to well i think the one i've really got attached to since i moved to orlando is give kids the world i don't know if you know about them it's an organization that takes care of eight to ten thousand families a year where they have children who are life have life-threatening illnesses Mm-hmm. And they can uh, they sponsor a one week trip for the whole family from anywhere in the world within 24 hours, depending on how sick the child is. And they bring them to Orlando. Everything's free: the airline flights, the rooms, 
they have villas. They stay there. It's like a magical place near Disney World, not too far. They get free tickets to Disney, Universal, SeaWorld. They have a wishing well. You can have ice cream for breakfast. Oh, yeah. It's an incredible place. And they handled, uh, I think this year, 8,000 kids. And uh, they do it very quickly because some of these kids are really not doing well and not they're very safe. And a lot of kids survive well. And a lot of the kinds that go into the give kids the world is it kind of gets them feeling better and something about the adrenaline that they get from that visit. Some kids recover and start getting better. So who knows why and what happens? But it's a great organization. See these little kids, and 80% of the kids who have a wish like that from the Make a Wish want to go to Disney. About 80% of the wishes are to go to Disney, and oh, wow. uh, so we made it possible. A lot of families can't afford it because they've been taking care of the sick child forever. Mom and dad haven't been out together for years, so we have a night out for mom and dad. We take care of the child, and uh, they can go out for dinner, and we set it up for them, and transportation, and yeah, it's complete, and it's, uh, it's a good thing. Because I don't think, as you know, having a child with autism or any, it it takes a strain on the family when it, it's not easy to do everything as it would be. Yeah, we lo- I love that organization. 10,000 children a year. Uh, it's really yep. a remarkable number. Yeah, plus their whole family. And, oh, yeah. Uh, the whole family. Mom, dad, if they got three brothers and sisters, they come on, everybody comes. They have a Make-A-Wish or a Give Kids a World button they wear. And, of course, the cast members all treat them like gold. So they have an incredible visit when they come here. Yeah, good, good people. Well, Lee, I have loved listening to your stories, and I really appreciate your advice. Thank you so much for being on Choose the Nickel. Yeah, thanks a lot. You take care and have a good new year. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check the show notes at www.choosethenickel.com for links to names, books, and other resources we discussed in today's show. While you're there, subscribe to your newsletter. Also, please like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share with your friends. We appreciate your support.